Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. This is the penultimate show in our festive season of specially themed shows, sharing some of the narrator blogs we've published throughout the year. I'm Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director for the Dementia Researcher at University College London and it's my pleasure to be introducing these special shows. If you're just catching up, earlier this week we covered some science, we had some tips for new researchers, we've explored the importance of involving people in research and today we have four more blogs on the topic of care and psychosocial interventions. It's important that care research be undertaken alongside the basic science, helping ensure we can look after those people who live with the disease today whilst also working to understand and prevent the disease for those in the future. For our first blog, we welcome back Dr. Anna Volkmer, a senior researcher and speech and language therapist at University College London. Published in February 2021, this blog is titled Dementia Care Over the Past 25 Years, From There's Nothing We Can Do to a Range of Interventions. Dementia care over the last 25 years from there is nothing we can do to a range of interventions. When I first embarked on my clinical career, there was a general feeling that should a person have a diagnosis of dementia, then there was very little we could do to support their communication at all. At the time I trained as a speech and language therapist, I'm revealing my age now, between 1998 and 2002, our lectures focused on rehabilitation for stroke-related aphasia and cognitive disorders related to right hemisphere stroke. Dementia didn't really feature, yet people with dementia and their families are not experts in communication and it seems unrealistic to expect them to just get on with things without some kind of support and guidance. I have often met people with dementia or their families after their diagnosis, be it months or years, and they report that they were advised, there is nothing we can do, in the words of one of my patients, or we were just abandoned, in the words of one of the wives of one of my patients. It is not uncommon that people receive their diagnosis of dementia and are then left to get on with their lives with little guidance unless things go wrong. Thankfully, things are changing. Since the late 90s, there's been a plethora of research evidence demonstrating the effectiveness of non-pharmacological interventions such as speech and language therapy for people with dementia. And excitingly, this literature demonstrates that there is so much we can do. Nevertheless, this research remains quite young and there are only a few systematic reviews describing the effectiveness of these interventions. Systematic reviews bring together lots of research studies on the same subject and combine and compare studies to give more power to the outcomes of the research, basically adding together the results of different studies that do similar things or the same thing to make the numbers bigger and therefore stronger. Systematic reviews are a really useful way of getting together all the research we have to show the progress in an area. In the last few years, there has now been enough research done to allow for these types of systematic reviews. Here is a bit of an overview of some of these areas. First of all, cognitive stimulation therapy or CST. 
CST is a psychological intervention typically delivered over 12 weeks, twice a week, in a group. Individual CST programmes have also been developed now. These are usually delivered by a psychologist, occupational therapist, a nurse or a speech and language therapist. The activities and discussions focus on areas including orientation, singing, exploring objects and playing word games. A systematic review in 2013 by Aguer et al. found 94 studies, 15 of which were randomised controlled studies, where people are randomly assigned to have CST or something else, and then results are compared. This is considered the gold standard to rigorous research. The research showed a consistent benefit to cognitive function that was maintained a few months after having had the therapy. Next, I'm going to talk about exercise for dementia. A review published in 2015 by Forbes et al. examined the effectiveness of exercise for people with dementia and identified 17 trials. They found the exercise described was really different across all studies in terms of how much, how often and what was actually done. This, amongst other things, meant it was quite difficult to compare the studies what they did find, however, was that people who participated in exercise were more able to complete their activities of daily living, like dressing, washing and preparing their meals and so forth. Education for carers. Education is quite a broad term, but it's incredibly valuable. In 2017, Dickinson et al. found 31 other systematic reviews, which they then reviewed, on the topic of psychosocial support for carers. They found these interventions were all quite different, but had in common education and a therapeutic component and were often delivered as part of or in combination with a support group. Results demonstrated a really positive impact on the well-being of both carers and people living with dementia and even supported people to live home at home for longer. This is an incredibly powerful result. Word practice. Often people with dementia experience difficulties thinking of words. For some, this can be one of the main difficulties. In 2013, a systematic review by Carter Goulart et al. identified 31 papers on doing word or language exercises to help maintain words for people with dementia, specifically primary progressive aphasia, which is the language-led dementia. In 2014, Jockel et al. wrote a review of this literature and summarised the factors that contributed to success when practising these naming of words, such as linking words to word meanings or linking words to word sounds, depending on what was the difficulty for the individual. Day-to-day -day communication in real life. In reality, people need to communicate with their loved ones, with their friends and at the shops and in the community. They and their families often come to speech and language therapy asking for advice on how to have a conversation or how to read a recipe, for example. A more recent review by Volkmer et al. in 2020 summarises 19 studies focusing on exactly these real-life functional communication skills and therapy approaches that can help. These studies had in common that they all worked on refining strategies people were already using and included the use of a communication partner, usually a spouse or family member, in the actual therapy. 
When people ask me about what we can do for people with dementia, I now talk about a toolbox or a buffet or a plethora, a plethora of options that we have that are all underpinned by research evidence. I also emphasise, however, that one size doesn't fit everyone and that the most important bits of working with people with dementia and their families is probably sitting down and listening to what they need. Evidence-based practice is based on what the research says, our clinical knowledge as experienced therapists who've been doing this for years and what the person actually wants and needs. In other words, there is a, a range of interventions at our fingertips. We just need to work out with the person and their family members what actually suits them. I really hope that people receiving a diagnosis are given information on those five things. And whilst on the topic, the wonderful Wendy Mitchell has a new book coming out on the 20th of January called What I Wish People Knew About Dementia from Someone Who Knows. It's available to pre-order on Amazon now and I'm very much looking forward to reading it. I feel sure it could help many people. In our next blog, we hear from the brilliant Dr Alice Griffiths. At the time of writing, Alice was at Leeds Beckett University. She discusses her research on the value of using relational counselling in dementia. This blog is from January 2021. Relational counselling as a psychosocial intervention for dementia. Receiving a diagnosis of dementia is life-changing in many ways for the person and their family and friends. Learning to live with the diagnosis can be challenging, upsetting and complex. In addition to this, people with dementia and their family members are prone to experiencing depression and anxiety as they adjust to the changes brought by the condition. There is a clear need for emotional and practical post-diagnostic support and counselling offers one way to deliver this. Counselling is a talking therapy involving regular sessions between a therapist and a client to discuss and make sense of experiences, find ways of coping and, where possible, resolve specific issues. For people affected by dementia, this may focus on working through feelings of loss and social isolation, role change from partner to carer and coping with the deteriorating health. The therapist role is to support clients through listening, showing empathy and warmth and engaging in discussion. Our recent systematic review identified mixed evidence for the benefit of counselling for people with dementia and or their family members on a range of outcomes including depression and quality of life. However, very little research considered the thoughts, feelings or experiences of the people who actually received the interventions. We sought to fill this gap in understanding by exploring experiences of an individual counselling intervention for people affected by dementia using their first-hand perspectives. We wanted to give participants the opportunity to explain what counselling meant to them, rather than looking at changes in predetermined outcomes. We interviewed six people with dementia and 23 people who cared for a relative with dementia before and after a 12-week counselling intervention. Our results found four main areas of importance for participants. Firstly, the expectations and outcomes of counselling. There was a sense of urgency in seeking counselling whereby participants expected improvements in their mental health and quality of life as a result of the intervention. Participants were often focused on acceptance of the diagnosis as a key outcome. The burden of dementia was considered in the context of the emotional impact of life with dementia. 
They worried about being a burden to others, the burden of coping with dementia and the additional life pressures aside from having caring responsibilities for family members. People noticed changes in their own personality and behaviours and benefited from being able to talk through these. Participants reflected on appraisals of their identity as counselling encouraged them to reflect on who they were. This helped to improve understanding of how to build resilience and focus on self-care, including the importance of having a strong support network. Finally, participants highlighted the importance of the therapeutic relationship and gratitude for working with a therapist with an existing understanding of dementia. They also appreciated having someone who was an impartial listener and allowed them to feel comfortable to talk openly about themselves and their family. Overall, our research suggests that counselling may provide vital support and lead to positive experiences for people affected by dementia. Such benefits may not be easy to quantify through standardised measures, emphasising the need for research which includes the first-hand experiences of those involved. There is clearly a huge emotional impact associated with the diagnosis of dementia, yet very little support is currently available for those affected. This is a specific area where counselling could help individuals and their families. Something that this research highlighted to us is that currently there is no dementia-specific content taught within counselling training programmes. As the number of people living with or supporting someone with dementia continues to increase, we would expect to see more people seeking counselling to help them come to terms with their situation. In-depth training and guidance is needed for therapists to ensure that they are able to provide appropriate support to clients whose lives are affected by dementia. This is particularly important as people with dementia have been labelled as beyond therapeutic reach, meaning that they would not be offered counselling-based interventions. We challenge this presumption as our research has demonstrated that people with dementia can meaningfully participate in counselling interventions and build a therapeutic relationship with their therapist. However, we do acknowledge the challenges that memory loss presents for counselling. Therapists with the expertise to gain in-depth understanding of each individual, their specific needs and the way they communicate will allow people with dementia to still benefit from counselling. In summary, our research explored how people with dementia and their family members experienced counselling interventions in their own words. We hope to use this knowledge to develop further research exploring current opportunities for counselling that are offered to people with dementia via the NHS across the UK. If you enjoyed that blog, you may also be interested in a webinar Alice and Professor Claire Sir delivered last year, exploring how we care for people living with dementia who also have the double blow of a cancer diagnosis. You'll find that on our YouTube channel. Our third blog comes from the newest of our staff bloggers, PhD student Nathan Stevens from the University of Worcester. Nathan is researching the Meeting Centre programme, which is being used across one county in England, hoping to create the evidence needed to support further use of that model. In this blog from August, he writes about rebalancing gender in care. Hello, welcome and thanks for checking out this blog. This is the second post of my monthly series on Dementia Researcher. In this post, I attempt to unpack the big and complex topic that is males in care work, or more to the point, the lack of them, and some key considerations in the area that are not just relevant to dementia care, but to many workforces in society generally. This post was motivated by my experiences as a male in dementia care, 
and by the belief that a more balanced workforce will better meet the growing need for care, but also address some of the deep-rooted issues that plague society, such as the gender pay gap. This posts a bit of a wild card, and I'm no expert here. So if I've offended you or I'm politically correct, sorry and please contact me. So to give some context to the post, better representation in workforces is a very real endeavour universally. Check out the Gender Equality Policy Hub for key policies. However, dementia care and health and social care generally is perhaps one area deserving of more focused interest and attention. If you are or once were a young man working in care, I'm sure you'll be used to explaining your place in a dominantly female workforce. Perhaps being asked why did you come into care and applauded by the fact you don't see many lads your age doing it. And they would be correct. Males make up a mere 18% of a 1.48 million people currently working in the social care sector, of which around 865,000 are care workers. Of course, this is not the only workforce where gender can form the basis of a discussion, and in society more generally, gender has become hyper-visible. But what makes this debate so politically essential is the wider context in which it sits. This isn't just a call for equity. It's a matter of need, and in real terms, people's needs being met. There is a growing population of older people requiring care, and interestingly, numbers of males aged 65 to 74 who live alone has increased 55% in a decade, making care provided by males more desirable. Also, the numbers of people living with dementia is forecast to triple by 2050, which, when considering there are an estimated half a million care jobs needed by 2030 alone, is all a bit worrying. A growing population adds pressure to an already stretched care sector, but it also has implications for the workforce. Unsurprising then, this year's Social Care 360 report from the King's Fund recommends workforce reform is essential, and I say that as though it's never been an issue. But if ever there were a time for reform, surely that time is now. Demographic pressures, growing public concern, following the justice people facing COVID times, a social care system at breaking point, the list goes on. Now is a time of real social movement towards significant care reform, whether the Tories like it or not. And I feel that at some intersection, I want, and I'm now questioning, to what extent can rebalancing gender in the workforce play? A very big and complex question, and I've probably dug a fair old hole for myself. But it's a question I find interesting, especially as I'm both a male in dementia care and a self-proclaimed equalist. What are the key considerations then? Well, it's in the name. Without returning to the time of cavemen, the Industrial Revolution highlights a decisive and genderized change in the status of work through the notions of productive and reproductive work, with productive being the waged employment outside the home. Because care work is associated with natural feminine attributes, such as love and empathy, it was viewed as work suitable for females. This is based on the essentialist view that males and females have different characteristics, which are inherently biological, and there's been significant in shaping the way different types of work is valued in society, and subsequently who enters labour markets and why. This social construction of gender roles has left an enduring legacy of inequality that has been continually and politically embedded into social and economic policy. Of course you need such personal qualities, but I have never been a fan of using the term care to define a role that is about so much more than just caring. By simply rebanding care, we can attract people of different gender, skill and capacity. And interestingly, if we can attract more males to care, research suggests that rather than seeking to imbue care with masculine traits, 
what will happen is a crossing of gender boundaries and that care work can loosen identity formations, opening new ways of being a male. Money also matters. While care workers' pay has increased in real terms through the national living wage, it has failed to keep up with other sectors, and we are now in a time when you can earn more cleaning in a supermarket, or put bluntly, in any other job. In 2019, the average pay in the private sector for a care worker was £8.50 an hour, and only around 15p difference an hour for those that had worked 20 years or just one. A disgraceful undervaluation of care work, and one that fuels a growing gender pay gap. But what respect for all of us who have or continue to offer emotional, physical and technical labour to ensure people live and die well. I strongly believe that care work is not only emotional labour, but as I said, physical and technical too. Yes, I provide trusted care, but I also operate personalised mechanical aids and assistive technology, make referrals across services, create and update support plans and risk assessments, and collect and manage personal information. To look at it as just physical is partial and counterintuitive to efforts to change public attitudes of what actually defines care work. If replicated on a large scale in the paid workforce, reports and research of informal male carers redefining caring tasks as skilled and technical labour, emphasising care as professional work, could do wonders for the pay debate and be a vehicle of real social change by transforming gender relations. Many commentators have called for a re-evaluation of care work over the years, but we are yet to see any significant change, with staff vacancies remaining at very high levels and rapid rates of turnover, which in the jobs market is an indicator of how attractive an occupation is. Care work urgently needs fiscal stimulus to compete with other sectors. We will never move away from the gender construction of care until we formalise and professionalise its practice to something that better reflects the real world. Anyway, this is beginning to become a long-winded post now, and I feel as though I am firmly buried at this point, so I'll round it up. So, will care work continue to be undervalued? Is the professional status of care work shifting? Will males continue to be underrepresented in the workforce? I'm not sure. But what we can be sure of is that carers make up 11% of total UK workforce, one in every nine employees. If we could have better gender balance here, then the impact would be huge across society, and not only as a way to meet the needs of more people needing care. Ta. There was a lot of focus placed on care homes and care during the pandemic. I only hope that this translates into long-term meaningful improvements. What do you think needs to be improved? do make a comment in whichever app you're listening in. Our last blog today comes from Dr. Purana Sabni. Purana joined our team for a short time earlier in the year, and in this blog she discusses some new research published by Dr. Aida Suarez-Gonzalez, also from University College London. Going back to January 2021, this blog has the title How the COVID-19 Lockdown Impacted People with dementia and their carers. How the COVID-19 lockdown impacted people with dementia and their carers. The UK went into its third two-month-long lockdown on January 4, 2021. 
Unlike the first lockdown, this time people aren't excited about working from home or interested in cultivating new hobbies to fill the spare time that the lack of traveling has afforded them. Instead, from their experience of the previous two lockdowns, they're concerned about the effect prolonged social isolation will have on their physical and mental health. Vulnerable populations such as people with dementia, especially those living in care home facilities, are at a particularly higher risk. See, 86% of individuals living in care homes have dementia. During the first lockdown, these care homes enforced strict social distancing measures to curb the spread of infection. These new rules raised barriers for individuals in seeking specialized healthcare and therapies. It also made it harder for carers to obtain support for caring. Despite the rigorous measures, care homes saw especially high rates of both COVID cases and deaths during the earlier stages of the pandemic. In fact, 49.5% of these deaths were deaths of people with dementia. At this stage, it is important to remember that dementia is an umbrella term for several neurodegenerative conditions caused by varying pathologies, that is, the cellular and chemical changes that can contribute to brain changes in neurodegenerative conditions. Due to this, some dementias are more prevalent than others. Expectedly, their differing pathology result in lesser-known symptoms and may manifest in age groups that do not typically befit the societal perceptions of dementia. As a result, people with rarer dementias and their carers might face slightly different challenges. In a preprint published on MedArchives on December 20, 2020, Ida Suarez-Gonzalez and Emma Harding of Dementia Research Center UCL explored the impact of the first lockdown on people with low prevalence dementia and their carers. Through the Rare Dementia Support Organization, they reached out to people with low prevalence dementias, including primary progressive aphasia or PPE, characterized by a progressive deterioration of language and communication in the early stages, people with posterior cortical atrophy or PCA, which is characterized by a progressive deterioration of the visual processing system, causing difficulties in reading, spatial navigation, locating and reaching for objects, and people with dementia with Lewy bodies or DLB, which is characterized by Parkinsonism and visual hallucinations. They also contacted people with familial forms of the more common Alzheimer's disease, which is often characterized by progressive memory decline, and people with behavioral frontotemporal dementia or BVFTD, which is characterized by changes in judgment social behavior and impulsivity. In the familial form of Alzheimer's disease and behavioral frontotemporal dementia, individuals have 50% chance of inheriting the genetic mutation from their parents. Individuals carrying these mutations can display Alzheimer's disease and behavioral frontotemporal dementia symptoms in their early 40s and 50s. The uncommon nature of these dementias often require more specialized care and resources. Subsequently, the lack of such resources can result in different challenges. In their study, Suarez Gonzalez and Harding administered an online survey of 11 questions, eight yes or no questions and three open-ended questions to gain insight into how the first lockdown affected people with dementia in terms of their cognitive symptoms psychological well-being, ability to do things, 
ability to connect with people, changes in their general health and medication. The survey also included questions to understand how the health of carers was impacted to glean more information regarding the support they received in caring and in helpful strategies they developed during the lockdown. The survey was administered to people with dementia, carers of people with dementia in the community living together, carers of people with dementia in the community not living together, and to carers of people with dementia living in care homes. 208 individuals, that is 184 carers and 24 people with dementia, responded to the survey. 70% of all carers reported that individuals they were caring for showed a decline in cognitive symptoms and reduced ability to connect with people. The social distancing rules put in place during the first lockdown and the resulting social isolation upset the daily routines of people with dementia and worsened behavioral and psychological symptoms such as apathy, depression, agitation, and anxiety. Consequently, medication changes, most frequently in increased dosage, were reported in 26% of the cases. Medication increases were mostly reported for antidepressants, antipsychotics, painkillers, benzodiazepines, and painkillers. Although less frequently, an increase of other medications such as blood thinners, uh, anticholinesterase inhibitors, and beta blockers were also reported. Of the people with dementia who answered the survey, 74% of them reported increased difficulties in connecting with people due to social isolation, and 50% of them reported that the lockdown negatively impacted their support and well-being. Almost all carers of people living in care homes, regardless of the type of dementia, reported an increase in stress levels due to the lockdown. More notably, these carers reported difficulties in providing care in the current circumstances. These carers also reported a higher percentage, that is 75% of worsening of cognitive symptoms. In comparison, carers of people with dementia in the community not living together and carers of people with dementia in the community living together reported low percentages of cognitive decline, that is 63% and 70% respectively. The authors proffered three possible explanations for these differences. They suggest that cognitive decline in people with dementia living away from carers may have been accelerated as they received less care and support. Furthermore, carers who did not see their relatives regularly may have experienced higher levels of anxiety, causing them to subjectively perceive higher levels of decline. On the other hand, Carers living with their relatives may be unable to notice subtle everyday changes that may have been more obvious otherwise, causing them to under-report changes. The authors caution that these results may have been influenced by several limitations, including a lack of demographic information, imbalanced representativeness of overburdened and underburdened participants, inability to access technology, and insufficient support systems for participants. Despite its limitations, the findings of this study highlight the importance of making social and cognitive stimulation and specialized therapeutic support more accessible during subsequent lockdowns. 
Providing adequate support to vulnerable populations such as people with dementia is imperative for their mental and physical well-being independent of COVID-19. As the government contemplates the potential for further restrictions during the spread of Omicron, I only hope someone important is reading the evidence and studies like this from last year. That's all for today. Join us tomorrow for the last show as we delve into our 2021 blogs archive. Thank you for listening. Join the Dementia Research bloggers and share your own views.